How is everybody? Good. Uh, let's see here. We'll get... Tell you what, we're going to read uh, Psalm 56 is what we're coming out of today. We talked about uh, just kind of leaning into a non-anxious presence last week and looking at Jesus in the storm, and it feels like we've had plenty of storms since that talk, so I don't know what that means, but, but uh, we're uh, going to lean into uh, Psalm 56 and just what it means to become uh, a non-anxious uh, presence this morning. I need to make sure translations match up. So uh, I'm reading out of ESV, um, but let's, uh, let's read this, right? I'll read this. Verse 1, Psalm 56, be gracious to me, O God. Let me just read up here, okay, so we're not confusing you. <laughs> be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long, they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this, I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thanks for the gift of this morning and just uh, being together. And um, Father, you have something for us today. And so, God, would it, uh, would it bear fruit? And uh, Jesus, just uh, speak to us in the coming moments. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you notice the intro of Psalm 56, it would actually read, especially in the NIV, so I'm glad we used that translation. But it says, for the director of music, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. You see, David knows the tune of fear and anxiety that everyone sings. And music can kind of act as a portal in time. There are some songs that take you back to a specific moment in time. Music is what I believe our souls respond to. There are some 90s hip-hop songs that I can recite the moment I hear it and haven't heard it in 15 years, especially if it's Biggie and Tupac, all right? So... <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, uh, my kids, when I take them to school, it's kind of our thing, but Monday is Motown Monday, all right? Tuesday is Tupac Tuesday. I sometimes get in trouble for that, but true story. Uh, Wednesday is Worship Wednesday, and then Thursday's Throwback Thursday, and Friday is Funkadelic Friday, all right? So Atomic Dog gets played on Friday. Now, you need to know, on Tupac Tuesday, it's all edited version. I want to be clear about that, okay? But when my daughter quotes Tupac, true story, at dinner, 
it kind of made my heart like really warm inside. <laughs> and so, uh, and then my wife gives me a look that uh, is not good. But uh, I told my kids, my family, if I ever go down, if I ever go down, make sure you play Motown. I grew up on Motown, had an uncle that lived with us and loved Motown. Motown is just like feel-good music. So the question for you is when you're having a bad day, what's your go-to music? You see, research shows the effects music has on those of us dealing with anxiety, depression, fear, terminal illness, etc., David was hired by King Saul to play music when he was plagued by a harmful or bad spirit. David was skilled in music, specifically playing the harp. And when David played, the intensity of this bad spirit lessened in King Saul. The same dude that killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands, not to mention the giant Philistine Goliath with a sling, also played a harp. Now, whatever gender stereotype you have of masculinity, David just blew that up. The Chinese philosopher Confucius said, if one should desire to know whether a kingdom is well-governed, if its morals are good or bad, the quality of its music will furnish the answer. David provides Saul with music therapy. In playing his heart before Saul, David was this non-anxious presence for a very anxious king. Unfortunately, Saul could not bring himself to confront his own deep-seated fear and insecurity. Saul would not be satisfied until David was dead. You see, David was a threat to Saul's kingdom. Saul's kingdom was ruled by fear and insecurity. In an article entitled, The Impact of Music Therapy on Mental Health, says this, music can be utilized to regulate mood. Because of its rhythmic and repetitive aspects, music engages the neocortex of our brain, which calms us and reduces impulsivity. We often utilize music to match or alter our mood. While there are benefits to matching music to our mood, it can potentially keep us stuck in a depressive angry or anxious state. To alter mood states, a music therapist can play a music to match the current mood of a person and then slowly shift to a more positive or calm state. David did this for Saul. But when the music stopped, this harmful spirit would rush upon Saul. 1 Samuel 18 tells us Saul was afraid of David. You see, the music that is getting played play gets muted during a time of fear or high anxiety. The music stops. You see, David took down a giant, and Saul refuses to deal with his own giant waging war inside of him. So let me ask you, what happens to you when the music stops? Let me ask you a few questions. Are you becoming the kind of person that faces your fear or are you becoming the kind of person that runs as far away as you can when faced with fear? Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, said fear stands for F everything and run. All right? And some of us maybe can uh, identify with that. There are just some fears we do not want to face. David is literally on the run from Saul. To be human is to fear. 
Let me say this again. To be human is to fear. And this psalm has the background story in uh, 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. Let me just read this. David is on the run from Saul, but listen to what it says, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And then catch this. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Don't you love that these stories like are in the Bible? <laughs> Where like it, you know, we can relate to somebody like that. He's scared of this King Achish. I know I said Saul before, but he's scared of this King Achish, and then he acts crazy. He acts crazy. He acts out of his mind. Why is that? Because he was afraid. And scholars are a bit perplexed as to whether David was going insane or was indeed pretending. But notice, David was afraid of this king. David writes in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, it is normal to fear. Fear is our instantaneous response to danger. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? We talked a little bit about this last week. It's important to name the fear. When we do not name the fear, our fear and anxiety tend to increase. Have you ever been sick and you decide to Google your symptoms? <laughs> Bad idea. <laughs> All right. Bad idea. And so maybe, maybe you take the advice of someone close to you and you actually go see the doctor. And once the doctor gives you the diagnosis, at least you know exactly what it is that you're dealing with. You see, this is a good starting point for all of us, no matter what it is that you have faced. Ronald Rollheiser, spiritual writer, he writes this, that's why totalitarian regimes fear artists, writers, religious critics, journalists, and prophets. They name things. That's ultimately the function of prophecy. Prophets don't foretell the future. They properly name the present. Another Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, is fond of saying not everything can be fixed or cured, but it should be named properly. So we first name it, then we must change our relationship with the fear that we face. And so how do we do this? Well, one, we have to reframe our fears. And number two is what do we learn from our fears? And so number one, reframe it. Fear can be a healthy motivator. You see, there is such a thing as a fear that is reverential or respectful. You fear lightning because it's dangerous. You respect electricity. 
Some of us fear water because it's dangerous. You respect maybe the water's depth or the unknown. Some fear heights because they can be dangerous. You respect heights, so you are prepared when faced with these specific examples. Now, as a kid, I was scared to death of heights, which meant that anytime we went to King's Island, I had nothing to do with a roller coaster until finally I wanted to be what I thought was being a man. All right, And I said, you know what? I'm doing this. I'm riding the vortex. My mother jumped on with me. And, uh, <laughs> and so we rode the vortex, and we were towards the front, and I absolutely loved it, but my mom was leaning over the side throwing up, all right? And so she was a good mom. <laughs> then I remember doing uh, work in construction. So about 14 years ago, I had a break in in ministry and did construction, working on the McAlpine Locks and Dam on the Ohio River. And one of my jobs as a part of the laborers union was after a fresh concrete pour, I would have to get on the wall, put over the big blankets. And what I wasn't prepared for is when my foreman looked at me and he said, hey, I need you to get up on the wall. The wall was 1,600 feet high. There was only room for me. And so I had to attach a cable from me to the cable that ran across the wall and throw these giant blankets. And keep in mind, this was a really windy day. And so I was like, okay. I got over the fear of heights pretty quickly, you know, that day. And also earned some overtime, you know, in the seniority letter. But um, the Bible talks about fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That is Proverbs 9, verse 10. And sometimes we confuse this as if we are to be afraid of God. This is not fearing like an angry deity like many, like many of the gods of Israel's surrounding neighbors, but I do believe this is a forgotten fear of many Christians today. Even in the New Testament, it speaks of fear of the Lord. Now, you need to know something. The biblical word for knowledge is never head knowledge, but is what Dallas Willard calls experiential involvement. It's relational. The further away we get from God, the more we fear all the wrong things. This happens in our relationships as well. If my wife and I, my wife's name is Sarah, if we're not seeing each other a whole lot and we're not really connecting, I may begin to think that she's either mad at me. Anybody else talk themselves into a, an argument before you even got home? You know, and you start working your way down this track, and then you go to worst-case scenario. Maybe, maybe she's liking some other dude. And you're like, how did I get here? Or maybe it's a friend that you have, and you haven't seen this friend for some time. They're not really responding to your text or whatever, and you're like, you just start going down the track. What did I do wrong? You see, this is what space and distance do. We start working our way down this track of a worst-case scenario that may not even be a reality. And the more that we distance ourselves from God or this relationship with God, the more we find ourselves fearing all the wrong things. We start making him out to be someone that he's not. And we start convincing ourselves that he wants nothing to do with me. You see, we misappropriate our fears. And so here's a few questions that may be helpful to think through. One, what am I holding too tightly? 
Another way to say that is, what am I trying to control? For some, it could be your finances. I have a major issue with this, my first years of marriage. You know, I knew the money I made. I knew the house and, and that I had. And so I was consumed with finances. We didn't come from much. And so for us, it was a constant, like, how much did you spend? How much did you spend? And, and it was just bad for the relationship. You see, we fear losing it. It could be relationships. And so what do we do? We try to control and manipulate the relationships that we have. Why? Out of a fear of losing those relationships. It consumes us. It could be what others think of us. We consume ourselves with people-pleasing. We make little gods out of the people around us. The second question is, what can I release? What can I let go of? Notice Dave's question. What can flesh do to me? Well, he goes on to tell us. This is the message translation of these next few verses. He says, they don't let up. They smear my reputation and huddle to plot my collapse. They gang up, sneak together through the alleys to take me by surprise, wait their chance to get me. You see what he's saying? What he fears is the loss of his reputation. We fear what others think of us and can do to us. We fear others' opinions of us. We fear they won't accept us. We fear they won't like us. We will say anything to get a like on social media. You see, comparison can be a cancer spreading into every part of our lives. Just watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. This exposes all of that. It exposes our insecurities and anxieties. This is what sometimes the bad side of social media can do. It can create fear, fear of missing out. It becomes fuel for comparison and envy. You see, what we notice is when we fear these things, our faith in God tends to shrink. As these increase, our faith decreases. We have misappropriated our fears. We fear people may disagree with us. Fear is the root of the culture wars we are currently seeing. This is the root of this cancel culture. We cancel what we fear. We refuse to listen and learn from someone that thinks differently than we do, looks differently than we do, or may vote differently than we do. And we cancel them. And we point the finger elsewhere on the other side or the other party that really we do the same things with one another. So David said, this I know, that God is for me. As one spiritual writer says, trust is the courage to accept acceptance. Let me say that again. Trust is the courage to accept acceptance. Remember the apostle Peter in denying Jesus? Right before that denial in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells Peter this, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he says this, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see that? Peter does have this moment with the resurrected Jesus on the beach as he went back to doing the thing that he knew how to do was to fish. But he has to face Jesus, the very Jesus that he denied just a day earlier or days earlier. And he faces him. And this was the prayer that Jesus had prayed for him, that he would return to him. What does that do for you? How does that affect you to know that Jesus prays for you? 
There is not a prayer that you pray that has not already been initiated by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment. We enter into a conversation that's already been had about us and for us. David does something here. David turns his fear over to God. You see, the root of comparison is the fear of not knowing who I am. If you find yourself envying someone or comparing yourself to someone, I promise you, when you get down to the root, it's a fear of I don't know who I am. And as for everybody. David turns his fear over to God. Fear is the starting point, not the finish. New Testament writer and beloved disciple John writes, perfect love does what? It casts out all fear. This is what's amazing. Science agrees with St. John. Arthur C. Brooks in his article in The Atlantic entitled, Love is the Medicine for Fear, listen to what he writes. This is a very strong argument, he says. Love neutralizes fear. It took about 2,000 years, but contemporary neurobiological evidence has revealed that St. John is absolutely on the money. He says this, fear is a primary emotion uh, processed in the amygdala. I can't help but hear Billy Madison in the back of my mind talking about the amygdala. Uh, amygdala. But he said, a part of the brain that detects threats and signals to the body to produce the stress hormones that make us ready for fight or flight. This is largely involuntary and while necessary for survival is unpleasant except under controlled circumstances such as roller coasters. Thank you. The fear response is also maladaptive to modern life. And he goes on to write, however, we have a natural modulator of a hyperactive amygdala, the neuroleptic oxytocin, sometimes called the love molecule. Oxytocin is often produced in the brain in response to eye contact and touch, especially between loved ones. The feeling it creates is intensely pleasurable. Indeed, life would be unbearable without it. There is evidence that an oxytocin deficit is one reason for the increase in depression during the coronavirus pandemic with its lockdowns and social distancing. He goes on to write, oxytocin has also been found to reduce anxiety and stress by inhibiting the response of the amygdala to outside stimuli. If you have loving contact with others, listen to this, the outside world will seem less scary and threatening to you. And he writes this, what St. John asserted is literally true. Perfect love drives out fear. And then he finishes the, the article with this. One current fear problem is not due to, uh, due to a proliferation of threats, the real issue is that we have too little love in our lives to protect us against fears. David found himself in exceedingly more isolation. And more isolation leads to less love, and less love equals more fear. This past week, I participated in a homeless immersion experience to better understand our neighbors without shelter. I pastor and minister in the highlands and inside the city region all the way up to, uh, to Nulu into downtown Louisville. And so we engage the homeless 
almost daily. And so to better understand and to be better equipped on what it is that they're dealing with, I made the decision to go through this experience. And so I spent two nights in a homeless shelter this past week attending recovery classes, uh, spending time walking the streets downtown, looking for resources, crossing the Second Street Bridge into Indiana, and visiting people throughout tent communities, and then making our way up to a white flag shelter. And you see the devastating consequences of isolation and the feeling that no one is for you. Now, homelessness is certainly a complex issue as many have suffered from significant trauma, coping with drug addiction, and, but also dealing with mental health in many cases. And I would say once you have met one homeless person, you have truly only met one. No two situations are really the same. One of the things I've been processing is through this time is I'm like, man, this was some of the most difficult 48 hours for me. And I've traveled to a lot of places, seen a lot of places, seen a lot of dark places overseas. But for whatever reason, I think because it was local, because it was tangible, and because it hit something inside of me that I began to process that, man, I identify with what these men and women are saying many times because I think I have a homeless spirit inside of me that finds it really difficult to rest in the Father's presence. Because of some things that happened when I was a kid, abandonment, some of these other things, I find it really difficult just to be. And that's what grace invites us into. And that's the power the gospel can have. You see, many people, many cities say, we're going to end homelessness in five or ten years. I'm not pessimistic, but Jesus says the poor will always be among us. I don't think Jesus is really saying, yeah, you'll resolve the homelessness issue this side of eternity. What I do think he's saying is, how do you identify with the homeless? How do you be present with the homeless? How do you engage the homeless? And this could be a number of other issues too as well. But I think what he wants us to know is he wants us to know the power the gospel can have. He wants us to know the power of presence and the power love can have for someone without shelter, providing them dignity and honor. I'll never forget sitting in a recovery class on Tuesday night, and uh, Troy was one of the men that were in there and had battled drug addiction, but had talked about attending church. Good-looking dude, very soft-spoken, and when he spoke... You had to listen because he had something to say. But he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, I've never understood why I can extend myself in friendship in the church, but very little was extended back to me. It was very rarely mutual. And I said something to him because I think, Troy, people make you a project and refuse to see you as a person. And he said, that's it. That's it. And so we learn from our fears. What can we learn from our fear? Fear is located in the mind and specifically in the limbic system of our brain. Listen to what Shakespeare says. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. 
Milton, another philosopher, says the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Mark Twain said this, I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. In the New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind, the author discusses cognitive behavioral therapy, known as CBT. It was developed in the 1960s by Aaron Beck, a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania. And at the time, Freudian ideas dominated psychiatry. Clinicians assumed that depression and the distorted thinking it produces were just the surface manifestation of deeper problems, usually stretching back to unresolved childhood conflict. Well, Beck pushed against that. He didn't think that anyone who had a depressive thought, you necessarily had to get back to the origin of the trauma to address that thought. He noticed that his patients tended to get themselves caught in a feedback loop in which irrational negative beliefs caused powerful negative feelings, which in turn seemed to drive patients' reasoning, motioning them to find evidence to support their negative beliefs. He called them the cognitive triad of depression. Listen to this. I'm no good. My world is bleak and my future is hopeless. Many people experience these thoughts fleetingly one or two times, but depressed people tend to hold all three beliefs in a stable and enduring psychological structure. These form what he called schemas, and these schemas refer to the patterns of thought behaviors built up over time that people use to process information quickly and effortlessly as they interact with the world. What he was essentially saying is the thoughts that you have come through a negative lens by which you see most of life, if not all. And so he wanted to change out the lenses Beck's discovery was that it is possible to break this feedback loop of negative beliefs and emotions. An overwhelming schema can be disassembled in a moment of great insight. I've often said it this way. This past year has been a really difficult year for me, and I caught myself in some thought patterns that, honestly, I've never had before in my life. And what I found myself doing for a guy that loves movies is the thoughts would become stories, the stories would become movies, and I'm the only one sitting in the theater watching the movie. And that's the way depression feels. That's the way anxiety feels. It isolates. Catch what David says in verses 5 through 7. All day long. All day long, he uses that absolute. They injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. He's being painfully honest here. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. You have kept count of my tossing. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Here comes his great insight into the heart of God. This I know, that God is for me. Notice the shift. David changes the schema or the narrative he is telling himself that God is indeed for him. You see, the mind is powerful, and the scripture attests to this. I think Jesus has a great deal of respect for our minds. I love it that your pastor and this staff challenges you to think. Because he does. 
He has a great deal of respect. Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with what? With our heart, mind, and soul. The Apostle Peter tells us to gird up the loins of our minds. The Apostle Paul tells us that transformation happens by what? By the renewing of our minds. Paul even tells us how to think. Think on these things, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God has a great deal of respect for your mind. What Beck discovers in the 60s is only, in my opinion, affirmed throughout the scriptures. This book goes on to discuss nine of the most cognitive distortions that people learn to recognize in CBT, these negative lenses. Listen to see if you can identify with any one of these nine. Number one, emotional reasoning. Letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. That's dangerous, folks. The example would be, I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out. You can't connect that dot rationally. Catastrophizing, number two, focusing on the worst possible outcome and seeing it as most likely. It would be terrible if I failed. We do this. Number three is we overgeneralize, perceiving a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. Well, this generally happens to me. I seem to fail at everything. We hear a lot of kids walking through this, right? Dichotomous thinking or black and white thinking or binary thinking, viewing events or people in all or nothing terms. I get rejected by everyone or it was a complete waste of time. We saw this certainly in the last year politically. Number five, mind reading. Assuming that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. He obviously thinks I'm a loser. Number six, labeling. Assigning global negative traits to yourself or others, often in the service of dichotomous thinking. I'm undesirable or he's just a nasty person. Negative filtering. You focused almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom noticed the positives. Just look at all the people who don't like me. We think like this. Number eight, discounting positives. Claiming that the positive things you or others do are trivial so that you maintain a negative judgment. I struggle with this one big time. Someone says something positive, well but you're the only one that thinks that way. It's really bad. It's really unhealthy. Number nine is we blame. Focusing on the other person as the source of your negative feelings, you refuse to take responsibility for changing yourself. Well, it's because my dad left me when I was eight years old. Or it's because my mother died seven years ago suddenly. And we do this this kind of blaming without taking responsibility and actually facing what it is that we fear and trying to learn from it. I believe David, throughout the Psalms, goes through all nine of these distortions. Sadly, that was just last week for me. (laughs) Oh, this is some of our reality, folks. David normalizes fear for us. David had every right to be stressed, depressed, and anxious at times. 
But what does he choose to do with it? How does he respond? David allows the divine therapist to do his work on him. I have a new mantra for myself that I've been telling myself. Just show up to the process daily. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, wrestle with your salvation with fear and trembling. I believe that's the journey of spiritual formation, of becoming more and more like Jesus, this non-anxious presence. And that's what I'm trying to spend every day leaning into. You see, this is not self-help or self-improvement. Please don't misunderstand that. Self-help and self-improvement puts us in control, not God. This is coming to David's uh, same conclusion. This I know, God is for me. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Let me just end by just giving you a few pastoral insights that I have found helpful in my own life in a dark season of fear or anxiety as I try and attempt to become more and more like Jesus, this non-anxious presence. One of the things I have found helpful is journaling. I am not a journaler, all right? It's really important that you understand that, but I have picked this up, and sometimes my journal entries are simply checking in emotionally. How am I feeling? What's going on that day? Maybe what happened yesterday? And just journaling that thought, just checking in on that so that I can track movement from one day to the next. Maybe some of you, it's starting a gratitude journal, just being able to write down things that happened that day that you're thankful for. It could be church this morning. It could be someone saying hello to you. It could be someone sending a positive text and you just taking the discipline to write that down. You see, David matched his mood when writing this song. We see that throughout Song 56. This may be something you want to consider. The other discipline that I would say is this, that you talk to someone, a pastor, one of your pastors here. Maybe it's a counselor or get a support group, but please hear me on this. When you talk to a counselor or a therapist, if they are not in some way pointing you back to community, I would say you may want to find someone else. Because community is vital. Trouble will happen. Do not make church just that thing you do on Sunday. It's got to be throughout the week. I believe we need a better theology of friendship. David, David had Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. And the way they talk about their friendship in 1 Samuel is beautiful. Jesus himself had a best friend named Lazarus, y'all. Jesus, the dude who died, buried, resurrected, had a legitimate friend in Lazarus. What does that say of us? I want to end where I began. David knows this song really well and knows the tune of fear and anxiety that plays in all of our ears. But y'all, he wants us to play the whole song. Listen to how Eugene Peterson ends this song. God, you did everything you promised. And I'm thanking you with all my heart. You pulled me from the brink of death, my feet from the cliff edge of doom. Now I stroll at leisure with God in the sunlit fields of life. 
Here's some critical movements that you can celebrate that I find myself celebrating today is a movement from fear to trust, a movement from panic to praise, and a movement from anxiety to gratitude. That's how you know, y'all, when Jesus is at work. And this psalm is from the man after God's own heart. Let me pray for us.